Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, From the Depths of Darkness to the Light of Success. I am your host, Chris Swick, and this podcast is all about sharing everyone's story. At the end of the day, I believe everyone's story is valuable. It does not matter what walk of life you come from. You all mean everything to me. I believe that I love to give this platform to everyone just to share their story and their struggles and what they're going through and where they are today. You know, we talk about mental health, addictions, recovery, you name it. I'm here to break the stigma around anything anyone's afraid to talk about. With no further ado, I'd like to introduce my next guest, Saya Nelson from the Colorado area of the United States. Want to take it away and let them know a little bit about yourself? Yes. Good morning. Thank you for having me. My name is Saya and I am a grateful recovering alcoholic. My sobriety date is April 10th of 2015. So I just recently celebrated six years. I live in the Denver metro area, but I grew up in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. I am the fifth of six girls. In terms of when people say, how was your childhood or or did something traumatic happen? I don't know that there was one thing I could pinpoint, which is something I'm really grateful for. But I think growing up in a house with seven women and my dad was a bit chaotic, was a bit chaotic. Just a lot of noise, a lot of a lot of estrogen. I, I was just about yeah. to say that. <laughs> my dad would always tell people he asked for a lot of women in his life. He just got it a different way. I I, I think My story isn't unique in the sense that, again, nothing hugely catastrophic happened. I think a series of small events led up to really the end of my active addiction for me. I played sports all growing up. I played basketball, volleyball, and softball. I did not really drink or go to parties in high school because I never wanted to get caught because then I couldn't play. And I. I think being able to do the work in recovery, I've learned a lot about where my drinking started and why. And I think it really started to progress right after high school. I was 17 and I was young when I graduated. I started working full-time at a country club. And from there, it was really no holds bar. I I had access to alcohol all around me. I was pouring alcohol. I was, it just was there. And after the first time I got drunk, I blacked out. And I remember coming to another reminder for me today that I'm so glad I get to wake up instead of just come to. I just came to and looked around. I didn't know where I was, how I got there, who I was with. And at the same time, something in my head was going, well, let's do that again. And I I had my oldest, I have three kids. Uh, My oldest is 19, my daughter is 15, and my youngest will be 11 on Friday. I had my oldest when I was 20, and then second when I was 24, and my third when I was 28. So I categorized my 20s by having kids, raising kids, and working full-time and being a mom. And I think it really wasn't until I hit about 30, I started hanging out with old friends. I started going out more, coming home at seven in the morning. And my husband at the time would say, where are you? And I'd say, don't worry about it. I took care of the kids all week. I, I deserve to go out. And again, in hindsight, being able to look back and own my part and do the work, none of that was okay. I wouldn't have accepted that if the roles were reversed. And then we moved out here to Colorado when I was 33, exactly a thousand miles door to door. And 
I think, again, in hindsight, it really was an intentional geographic get away from family. All of our family was back in the Chicagoland area. I didn't know anyone here. My older two could walk to school and I would take my youngest to the liquor store every morning. And that was just how it went. So we moved here August of 2014. My sobriety date is April of 2015. So again, when I share all the time that it really was eight months of just getting deeper and deeper into that hell, into that isolation. I didn't ever go out. I would just drink at home all the time. I didn't have to be accountable to anyone. And as ridiculous as that sounds, even saying it now, my kids could walk to and from school. I I just didn't, I could text my mom and sisters in a group text and not have to talk to them, not have to, I wasn't slurring my words. They were just reading texts and So there was a lot of isolation and hiding. And on Thursday, April 9th, my sister, who is just older than me, flew in from Virginia. And to this day, I still swear that it was an intervention. Neither she or my ex-husband have ever confirmed that, but the timing was too coincidental. I think, honestly, he saw how far down I had gotten and, and needed help and didn't know what to do. So she flew out. He went and picked her up from the airport. I don't remember him picking her up or coming back. I just remember waking up at about 2.30 in the morning with a cup in my hand. It had spilled all over me. And I looked over and she was sitting next to me on the couch, wide awake. And I said, what are you doing? And she said, I was afraid that if I fell asleep, you wouldn't wake up. And I said, why? And I just looked at her. And she had tears streaming down her face. And she said, you don't remember me getting here, do you? You don't remember our conversation, do you? And I said, no, and tried to laugh it off. And she said, you might want to go look in the mirror. And at this point, we were coaching our youngest soccer team. We had soccer pictures the following morning. So I go in the bathroom and I just had blood all over my face. And my lip was, it looked like I got stung by a bee. And I'm allergic to bees. So that's how big it was. And I was like, oh, this is really great. So... She said, he's waiting for you in the driveway. So I walked outside and he was standing there with his truck open and he had two large black plastic bags, like the contractor size, and they were full of empty vodka bottles. And he said, you need to do three things or I am taking our kids and going back to Illinois. You need to go to rehab. You need to talk to a counselor and you need to go to meetings now. So I got started. I think there are a lot of moments in early sobriety that I won't ever forget, I hope. And that was one of them. I remember looking him in the eye and saying, you will never take my kids from me. I did the majority of the child care, always change their diapers, meals, to and from school, doctor's appointments, all of that. And I think really for me, that was the kick that I needed to wake up. Like after that conversation, I remember this feeling came over me like it was a sense of relief. Oh, thank God I've finally been caught. I don't have to hide. I don't have to plan and scheme and figure out where I put what bottles and and what am I going to mix it with. At the end, I was making tea and putting vodka in it. I was making country time lemonade, anything I could find. And that was really like the insanity part for me. So That's I like called. me too. I would just go... And do whatever. It didn't matter 
what for me i was more of i was into drugs and stuff and booze was just there but same thing i didn't care what i was putting in my body as long as it gave me that mind mood altering feeling just to escape from my insanity that i had caused or well i didn't cause the insanity but all my feelings and stuff that i just kept pushing down i would just escape from them with whatever the hell i could put in my body i didn't even care at points even if I knew, I didn't even know what the hell the drug was. I'd still do it just to get yeah. an effect. It's, it gave you that temporary feeling that you were looking for. Yeah. It's really crazy. I think, you know, so that day was really my day one. I honestly, by the grace of God and the fellowship of recovery for me, I that was the last day I drank so far. And I'm not a fool to think that those yets could never happen to me. I have a friend who is 38 years sober and he always says, say yet stands for you. You're eligible too. So don't discount. That's still, if you aren't working, it's that saying, if you're not working on your recovery, you're working on your relapse. And all of those things used to drive me crazy at the beginning, but they're so true. I tell people, I spoke with a woman sober living that I just love out here. And they're all in that tough place of right at the beginning and trying to figure out what to do and angry and you know, all this stuff. I hate those things. I hate when people say, keep coming back or one day at a time. I'm like, look, I couldn't stand those either. And now I have one day at a time tattooed on my arm. I promise they'll stick with you. It's people, I think people had to tell me what I needed to hear in early recovery, not what I wanted to hear, because I don't think I would be sober today if people were saying things to me like, you're okay. It's all his fault, all of this. I didn't need to be coddled. I, I don't think I would be sober today if I didn't get that tough love. And and that's what I needed too this time around. April, April, sorry, that's your recovery date. Mine's November in 2019. But same thing, I needed that tough love as well, whether it was losing my kids for six months before I could show and prove that I had clean drug tests. I had to show a few clean drug tests and before I could even have access to them again. It was phone calls, that's all it was for me for a few months. So I had to work my ass off. And I knew if I didn't do that, well, I wasn't gonna see my kids. I wouldn't have a partner. I'm grateful that I have a partner today that held my hand and basically pushed me to be the best version of myself that I am today. I have a successful Mm -hmm. job, but I wouldn't be there without her though. I can tell you that right now, I would be dead in a ditch in a morgue or in jail, the route, the rate I was going at that point two years ago. Yeah. It's really, for me, it's amazing to look back even on the relationships I have with my kids today. My oldest went through a lot of addiction related stuff from like 14 to 17. He was in and out of juvenile detention and all these things. And I had to call the police on him several times. I had to take him to the police station to turn himself in several times. And I think that had I not had that foundation of recovery at that point, I was about two and a half years sober when that started. I don't know that I would have made it through. I don't know that drink did not even cross my mind during that stuff. And he was missing for three days. I, I had no idea where he was. I was literally driving around looking for him and sleeping in my car. And all I knew was that recovery, I called, I reached out to people who I knew would come and help me. And I didn't have that stuff before sobriety. I didn't have those relationships with people that I could really count on and be open and vulnerable. And so it's really neat to see 
how those relationships have really grown today. I know I had this conversation on a podcast recently that I was on too. And, you know, it's, they asked me like, what is addiction to you today? Or what were, I forget exactly how it was phrased, but basically while I was in a, like when I got clean and sober, there were no fucking friends there. Where were my friends? Like I could count my true friends on one hand, including my partner. And I included my kids there and a couple of good friends from my childhood that stuck around. But all those other people were acquaintances. I was using drugs with going to crack house, hanging out at trap houses and stuff like that. And they're not around anymore. And I chose for that to happen though, too, because they weren't there looking for me when I was almost dead on my, my floor and stuff like that. They weren't there to help me. It was there was a couple of people there to help pick me up and push me, kick me in the ass, basically, and give me a swift kick mm-hmm. in the ass and a sw- swipe upside the head. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I know a woman asked me recently, actually, one of the women from this sober living, she said, someone was really, someone really hurt my feelings and said, you need to put on your big girl panties and, and get this, get your shit together, I think is how they said it. She said, it really hurt my feelings. I'm like, really? Like that hurt your feelings? Do you think that they care enough about you to want to see you get better, to see how far you've gone down? Like you're going to focus on someone hurt your feelings by telling you your life is a disaster. Your kids got taken away. You're in a sober living. And so many people, I think, go through those situations And for me, I came in because I didn't want to lose my kids. I was fighting a parental responsibilities evaluator, a substance abuse evaluator. I had to drive an hour each way. I had no job, no money, no bank account, nothing. And I knew no one out here. So when I started, and I shared this about a year ago on a friend's podcast, and he said, do you think God brought you out to Colorado so that you could be completely torn down and rebuild your life? And I was, and it was really the first time I'd thought about that. And I was about five years sober. I'm like, yeah, I do. I didn't know anyone in recovery here. So if I was going to make new relationships, friendships, all of that, a recovery community, I had to do that work. I had to call people. I had to go sit in meetings. I had to call when they gave me a phone list. And that was so foreign to me. So I think I have a hard time when people start throwing those excuses because we all use those excuses and no one could get or make me stay sober. Nobody could. I I had to want it. And I think we all get to that point. I think that's why especially the stigma piece. When people would say to me at the beginning of sobriety, gosh, how bad were you? I'm like, does that matter? Does that really matter? I was as bad as I needed to get in order to want to get better, in order to want to be healthier and be, it doesn't matter if my rock bottom isn't the same as yours or the comparison part will keep me sick, I think. And that's what I learned in early recovery because that's all I did. I would sit around in the rooms with my arms folded, look at everybody and go, oh my gosh, I'm not like any of these people. But yet they had that peace. Well, they had that peace and serenity that I wanted. And who was I to judge how different we were when they're the ones who were, were sober and actually had a job and family and life. And I didn't. No, and I get what you're saying too. And not to knock recovery. I love recovery and stuff too, but I've stepped back from recovery rooms up here, especially in Canada, just because I find so many people 
and not knocking it. Like I said, don't take anyone, don't take this the wrong way. Recovery is amazing. The people I've met in recovery are amazing. But I think there's more to it than just going to meetings. So you have to put the work in on the outside of those rooms too. It's not just about going to meetings. And I found certain people were always judgmental. Not everyone, but certain people are judgmental about what you're doing on your outside life with your recovery. You're not doing it the way that they're doing it. So they're judgmental about it. So I took a step back though and said, I can still do recovery and not go to the meetings as long as I keep on the right path. And I still talk to people in recovery, but I've stepped back from the rooms myself personally though. That's just my own personal opinion and I'm allowed to have it, but I still, I'll still show up to meetings once in a while because I miss that camaraderie, you know what I mean? But it's all online up here right now. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I So there's a group that I, there's a, my home group meeting, I've, they have met every Thursday night for the last 35 years and travel to different meetings. So it's dinner and fellowship and then going to support a local meeting that needs support or it's new or, and it is such a great group there. I I am the youngest in sobriety in that group. And the next one I think has 27 years and the oldest one has 51. It's crazy. So I feel like for me, when I surround myself with people who are actually living this deal, you can sit in rooms for months and not change a thing about your life, except you're not drinking. And that's a dry drunk to me. I don't ever want to live that way. I, and I have felt like I've gotten stagnant and stuck sometimes. And it's because I think I need to reinvent the wheel when it's been working for five and a half years. And then uh, this happened probably six months ago. I just got stuck. I just, I couldn't keep doing Zoom. I liked that, but a lot of meetings around here didn't ever close. So when I feel like that, I know that something is off in my recovery. I'm not reaching out. I'm not connecting. I'm just going through the motions of my daily routine. And instead of that, with that energy and vigor that I had at the beginning. So today I know how to get myself back on track a lot quicker instead of sitting in that pity party place. At least I'm still sober. It's like when people say things like, oh, you got this. I That phrase just drives me crazy because I don't want to ever feel like I've got this. This is a way of living to me. It's not one program that you go through or I go through in a six month time frame and then I'm done and I'm cured and hallelujah. Yeah. I don't want to feel that way. Oh no, I totally get exactly. And I don't ever want to feel that way either. And, but the, that was one of the reasons I started this podcast too, is when everything was on zoom, I just couldn't do zoom. There was just so many people on these meetings and it just wasn't as organized. I found as going in person sort of thing. So mm-hmm. that where I stepped back, but I still kept in touch with people in recovery. And then I've met so many amazing people through this podcast, like yourself, and you've been on Jose and Ralph's podcast as well. Like I've met so many people from all over the world, just sharing their stories. And it's not all recovery based. I just believe everyone's story is valuable. And that's where I, I get my recovery from there now. And I, it just fills my cup that way, talking with so many people, because everyone has a story to tell at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And that's, I truly believe that everyone's has a past. It doesn't matter what, like what 
someone tells you, in my opinion, I think everyone has a pastor. You know, there's a story to tell from whether it's their child or what something's happened to someone. There's some generational mm-hmm. trauma everywhere. Yeah, I, I, I think that's why I try to share. I think, honestly, that we are all in recovery from something, whether it's mental health issues, eating disorders, substance abuse, Whatever that is, childhood trauma, domestic violence, anything, I think that if everybody took a step back and looked at their life, there is something we can be in recovery from and working towards and healing through instead of using these outside circumstances and substances to numb and drown and push down. Because I don't think you can only be in recovery from addiction. But I absolutely agree that stigma around addiction, especially for women, I think it is still so prevalent and it's frustrating. I am in a mom's group here and especially during the pandemic when everything was really still closed here, everything's really opening up more now. But from the beginning of the pandemic till probably a month ago, every day, at least three or four wine memes, mommy needs wine, mom deserves a drink. And so finally, I just posted a picture in there. And it was my shirt that says sober mom. And I said, Look, I I know that I'm not the only one who has dealt with addiction, who might be in sobriety, who might be working through recovery, whatever that is. I know I'm not alone. And it's really overwhelming, and really sad when this is what we're flooded with, that my, that I deserve a drink because I took care of kids today. Don't you deserve to take care of yourself? Don't you deserve to feel well and feel healthy? And I couldn't believe, and I hit post and I was like, oh crap, what did I just do? And I couldn't <laughs> believe, by the end of the day, because usually I just stay quiet on that stuff and it is what it is, but I just couldn't stay quiet. I couldn't. I knew there were too many other moms who had to feel like I did because I know in early sobriety, I felt so alone. I felt like I was on this island and all these other moms could have a drink or one drink and have a sip and walk away. And that wasn't me. And so at the end of that day, I had about 30 messages and 55 or 60 comments on that saying, thank you for sharing. I've been sober for four years or my husband's really struggling. I don't know what to do. And it's so nice it just started a good conversation. And I, and I think for me, from my perspective, I feel like that's the only way that stigma is ever going to lessen is when we have those conversations, when we talk as openly about our recovery stories, as we did about our war stories, we would share stories about Oh, remember when you dropped your phone in the margarita and it didn't work? Or, yeah, that was so funny. And then we don't talk about where we are in recovery because that stuff's hard. That stuff I find it makes people uncomfortable. There's certain people that, and that's fine. If you don't want to, you can scroll on past my post or unfollow me. It doesn't bother me anymore. Like, and I have people that it makes uncomfortable and I can, you know, they'll post things or whatever and it's indirectly directed at you, but that's okay with me though today. I'm comfortable mm-hmm. in my own skin today and comfortable enough to come out and share what happened to me 25 plus years ago. Now it took me 25 years. That's why I was stuck in my own addiction for so long because I had holding on to one thing that happened to me as a child. Once I came out about that, it was like a big 
weight lifted off my chest. And I'm just mm -hmm. so grateful that I did that because now I'm able to help others. And I've had people reach out to me. Thank you for sharing your story. And they've talked to me about their struggles for the first time and stuff like that. And it's mm -hmm. just awesome to see that where my partner's open about my struggles with her family and stuff like that. And she's open to talk to others about it now too. It, she's really opened up and she supports me 100% in my journey. She never wants to mm -hmm. see me go back to the place I was at. So she's very open yeah. and supports me and supports my show and shares stuff, you know, about me. And she's very, and she's come out of her shell too, sharing her struggles with mental health and stuff like that too. Yeah. It's just incredible. Really. I think hearing that it makes me think, did you ever think that sharing that finally getting that weight off, finally letting go of what was holding you down for so long would ever feel so freeing and so helpful and hopeful for other people. And it's no, I didn't. I was scared to say those things out loud. I was scared to admit what happened or what I did because I was afraid of judgment by who? Because most of the time what I've learned is it's judgment by people who might have a drinking problem, who might question their own story or, or they're or suppressing their own too. stuff. And why I think I work in home care and I work with, I do the client intakes and I work with clients who are literally on their deathbed or clients who need help just with everyday life stuff. And it makes me realize, first of all, how much I have to be grateful for. And secondly, I don't want to live this life feeling ashamed of my story. I was ashamed of my drinking for so long. I don't want to live that way anymore. I don't want to. My dad died 35 years sober. He died five days before I had a year of sobriety. And I didn't know. I never heard about recovery from him. I never heard about him going to meetings. So what I can do differently so that my kids don't feel like how I did when my dad died, I share with my kids all the time. My kids have come to meetings with me a million times. We talk openly about recovery. I wear sober AF shirts all the time and they get to be proud of me. When I had 2000 days, I woke up and went downstairs and I saw, went to journal. In my journal was a note from my 10 year old and it just said, congratulations on 2000 days, mom. You've changed everything and I'm so proud of you. And I just think- How does that make I, you feel? I, I'm not the only one who- who gets to do this recovery work. My kids get to grow with me and talk. I had the same me. thing too with my son who's 14, will be 14 this year too. Same thing. He tells me how proud he is and his mom will tell me, she'll say, Chris, like your son's just scared sometimes because he doesn't want to see his dad go back out to what he was doing. He's mm -hmm. seen enough. I, I'm not ashamed to admit today. Like I would take my own fucking kids and go pick up drugs with them in the vehicle and go home mm -hmm. and stuff like that but i'm not ashamed today and, and he, he's seen enough he doesn't need to see anymore and he's just afraid that i will and, he, and that's how and that and he's right has that right to be afraid because that yeah. sticks in the back of his mind where i was two years ago or for the last yeah. his whole life basically yeah i think what i've learned from that with my kids especially my oldest my oldest too and even with my ex-husband Things like the, that's the living amends I get to make. And they have every right to think that tomorrow I could be right where I was six years ago because 
I, I showed them for a long time. That was all I knew how to do. That was the only way I knew how to do life. So for me to all of a sudden think that they should forgive me and think that I'm this fabulous person who is working in recovery is really a little cocky. And I have to be able to put my ego aside and say, look, I know that for years I proved that all I could do was drink. What I want to prove today, and and it's something I learned in early recovery, when someone said to me about a foot from my face, we can't wait till you fail. We can't wait till you drink again. And I remember thinking, I can't wait to prove them wrong. And what I learned was that well, I had to work to prove myself. And when I started to do that and started to take care of myself from the inside out, I was able to be a better mom, a better sister, a better friend, a better coworker, all of those things. And like my ex-husband, we went and got birthday presents for my youngest and he brought was getting me a sparkling water and it looked like one of those white claws or I don't know, those weren't around when I was drinking. So of course they come out with all these cool things, but it looked like that. And I looked at him and I said, does that have alcohol in it? And he's, oh gosh, I don't know. I didn't even look. I'm sorry. I didn't even ask. I'm like, that, it's okay. And he's like, let me go ask someone. And so he went and asked and then the lady looked at him like, does it matter? And I could hear him talking to her and he's like, look, she's six years sober. She doesn't want anything that has alcohol in it. That's all I'm asking. And I just stood there for a second. Like, this is the man who rightfully so was fighting me to take my kids a thousand miles away because he didn't trust me. He didn't believe I could be a responsible parent, any of that. And here he is fighting for me with this woman about a drink that could have alcohol in it because he sees how far I've come. And and those things, even my youngest will say, dad was saying how proud he is of you and the work you've done in recovery. And I'm like, oh, well, he's never told me that. But that's that ego piece. I don't need to hear it. I My kids see that. And, and that's the living amends that I get to make every day. So what are some of your deepest values today? I think I, I always tell people, I, people will say, I need to see it written. And I'm like, I promise you that won't help you pronounce my name at all. I think honestly, real and true, genuine relationships and friendships, the people who I could open up my phone at midnight and say, hey, can you listen to me? Being able to be of service answering my phone when people call, responding to messages, responding to emails when people say, hey, can you share? It takes an hour out of my time. I spoke to a group on Saturday and I was so tired. I was I was just exhausted. And I remember the thought came in my head, just call them and tell them you can't do it. And I sat there for a second. I'm like, there, there are a lot of people who showed up in early recovery for me and maybe they didn't always want to. And about 15 minutes into that, I was, this is why I'm still sober today. Because when I get to be of service to people, it gets me out of myself. It allows me to be vulnerable and show other people that it's okay to be vulnerable too. That no matter what I've gone through or they've gone through, there isn't a thing today that a drink or a drug or I almost said ice cream, but ice cream does make things better sometimes, but there's not a drink or a drug that will ever take away 
those things without dealing with them. So for me, it's really, it's really my kids, my family, friends, getting outside in nature, all of those things that fill me so that I can give away what was given to me. I can't do that if I don't have that. I can't give away peace or joy or hope if I don't have those things first. I like that you say that though, because today I am able to give back what was so freely given to me, like you just said. And I'm, I wouldn't be able to do that if I was still out running around doing drugs, stealing from others, those types of things. So I'm not teaching those people those things. Teaching, I, I'm still learning myself. I go to therapy to this day still. Like I'm peeling back those layers from all these years of the shit mm-hmm. that I caused and the shit storms I caused. I'm now peeling back those layers and learning how to be a good partner to my partner because mm-hmm. I did. I, I was so selfish, and I'm sure you were the same way. From what I've heard through your story for the last little bit, that you know, us in recovery or people that are in addiction or have that disease, we are very selfish people. And and I was so selfish for so long, whether it was with my drugs, it was all about Chris. It didn't matter what. And I have to catch myself a lot today, like. Even in recovery, like I'm still bad for it. And I, I get called out all the time all in my bullshit by my partner. And I'm glad mm-hmm. she does because I'll say, I need this. I need that. What about stuff we need, Chris? Yeah. <laughs> or what can right. you or do? What, what can you do something nice for your kids or go buy something nice for your kids? It's not all about Chris all the time. And I still yeah. have to catch myself. It's, it's not hard. going to buy drugs or stuff like that, but I always want something <laughs> for myself though. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I think I, there are times, especially in early recovery, but even today where I'll catch myself like that thinking, at least I'm not buying alcohol. I'm like, is that really like the, the scale I weigh things on now? Not I'm buying this for my kid or I'm going to go do this for someone else, but at least I'm not wasting money on alcohol. That's not the, the scale I want to weigh things on. <laughs> I did that with my doctor a little while back. Like I'm on a medication. I have ADHD as well. And that's the only thing I'm on to stay focused. If I wouldn't be able to be successful at my job the way I am today in sales, if I honestly wasn't on this medication, but it's expensive. So I looked at him. I said, "It doesn't. My benefits don't cover all of it. They only cover part of it because it's such an expensive drug, and there's no generic brand for it." He said, "Chris, he looked at me. He's like, how much fucking money were you spending on crack cocaine every month?" He says, "Yeah, is 102 dollars a month really gonna kill you?" He said, maybe <laughs> he looked at me though because it, it was in the thousands a month you know what I mean like mm-hmm. and he just looked at me he's like, really how much money were you spending on drugs a month Chris that 102 dollars on a medication that's actually helping you we found the right medication for you now yeah <laughs> yeah it's funny and I think I try to it, it reminds me of that meme that I could spend my entire paycheck on drugs and alcohol, but I, today I can't afford guacamole on a burrito, you know? Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. like, yeah, how, I don't even know. And now it's, it, I don't know. I don't, sometimes I don't know where the money goes, but it doesn't go to alcohol is all I know. <laughs> yeah. And, and same with me. Like I, I have savings. Like I actually started an RS, my RSPs again, and I'm able to do that. I'm able, I don't have to worry every month. I'm not the one that takes care of the funds, but I'm slowly learning how to be a functioning person in society today. Yeah, what it's, yeah like it's to, amazing, huh? <laughs> and my partner still, I'm grateful for her because I don't think I'd be where I am today without the help of her though. But I, she's slowly stepping back now. Like 
I have more responsibilities. I didn't have a bank card for the first, for the longest time Mm -hmm. in early recovery either. I wasn't able to be trusted with a bank card in my relationship because that's all my money just went to drugs. It didn't matter where, what happened. Any money that came to Chris was just spent on drugs. Even my child support wasn't paid, but today it's paid every month and on time. Or when a bill comes up, it gets paid on time. I have money there to pay that bill. Rent's there. And I, I don't still have to... want a pat on the back for those things. But that's what normal people do. They no. pay bills. And... <laughs> yeah. I I'm still able, want I someone have a car. to say, good job. Exactly. Today, I have a car, that, I, but I was rewarded for my job in sales that I was given a demo. Like people see and you get rewarded today in recovery for doing good things. And the good work that I put in, the hard work I put in at work, it took me a while, but mm-hmm. my boss seen that, like that I, I I show up every day to work. I don't call in sick or just not stop going to work and decide I'm done with that job because they pissed me off. They, they looked at me the wrong way that day. <laughs> yeah. And I also, it's those little white lies. You just made me think of that, like calling out of work sick. If I'm calling out of work today, I'm going to say, I can't come in today. And that's it. It's not, oh my gosh, I don't feel good or, and making something up because I'm hungover. It's, I I just need a day off and that's okay because today I am trustworthy and I am loyal and I do my work and I have proven that to my team enough that when I need time off, it isn't, oh, what is she doing? Exactly. I appreciate you coming on the show today. Um, <laughs> thank you thank you for no having problem. me i'm glad we could talk you're very welcome and just before we go though i love to ask my guests these this one question though what are three things you do for yourself on a daily to keep your mental health in check that one is actually pretty easy for me because i know it has one of them already <laughs> it's I follow mind, on Instagram, body, and guys. soul i'll tell you <laughs> it's just mind body and soul work i get up and i journal and then i read and sit in quiet and then i get to the gym So it's all three of those every day. And whether it's a good day or a bad day, or I slept like crap or not, it, I always feel better. It's so true though. I feel better whether it's reading and the gyms aren't open up here in Ontario yet, but I'm able, my partner is on a strict regimen now too, with her nutrition coach and stuff like that. So She's got my ass working out at home now with her. I, I like, I can't do this workout at home. She's you're doing it. You're like, yes, helps I me, am. <laughs> holds me accountable, but it's yeah. good. It, it makes me feel good though. After getting up and doing that before I go to work every day and mm-hmm. heading to the dealership, I feel really good. Whether my legs are sore or not, I still feel yeah. good though. It yeah. makes me feel it's good. It's the endorphins myself. and it's that yeah. adrenaline and it's chasing a, a completely different high than I ever imagined I would. <laughs> And before you go, where can they find you? I'm your most active for me on Instagram. That's where I found you. Where can they find you? What's your handle on there? So then come follow your journey. You have an amazing story and amazing posts every day. Thank you. Yep. I'm, I'm on Instagram and Facebook, but I really shared on Facebook just her family and old friends. But on Instagram, it's just s.nelson42. I don't have some cool sober handle. I just have my name. <laughs> Yeah. So anyways, guys, please head over to her page and give her a follow and show her some love because she has some amazing stories and just really insightful and powerful messages on a daily basis with her journey in recovery. So thanks again for coming on the show today, Saya. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you too. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Saya Nelson. What an amazing guest she was and a 
amazing story of triumph. I'm so happy to see she's in recovery and recovering out loud is what it's all about. Share your stories, guys. That's what it's all about here. I believe everyone's story is valuable at the end of the day. Doesn't matter what walk of life you come from. If you could go over to Apple Podcasts, Apple Music, wherever you listen to your podcasts, and leave me that five-star review. And write me up a little something. Let me know how the show's going. Or you can head over to Anchor FM and leave a voice message for the show. It would be greatly appreciated. The next guest on the show is Dean Italiano. He is an author, a writer, musician, also has four books out, was also caught in the middle of Hurricane Katrina and suffers PTSD from that experience. We will be diving deep into that experience and what it was like to be in the eye of the storm down there in New Orleans at the time of Hurricane Katrina. Wait till you listen to this one, folks. You will not want to miss it. Have a great rest of your day.